Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. A month ago, horticulturist Charlie Nardozzi joined us on Where We Live to answer all of your gardening questions, and we had a great response and a great time. So we're back with another hour on Connecticut gardening. But today, we're actually going to be exploring some of the state's most remarkable gardens. Later, we hear about Connecticut Historic Gardens Day and what it takes to become a master gardener. But first up, Karen B. Davis is an architectural and landscape design photographer, and she's also the author of a new book called Connecticut Gardens, a celebration of the state's historic, public, and private gardens. And we're also joined by Chris Laurie, who is the co-author of the new book. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Catherine. And just a reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation. Let us know if you have a favorite garden here in Connecticut, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Chris, you started the book by talking about the origins of the gardens. You know, gardens have become or have been a part of human history for many, many generations. So what do we know about what gardens have looked like throughout the ages and how have they evolved? Well, that's a great question, Catherine. Originally, gardens began as basically for survival as we moved away from um, our sort of nomadic um, hunter civilization into a more centralized uh, living we had gardens and that that's really what was able to to get that whole shift in in the way we lived started so they start out as survival mostly for food that was gathered and, and planted from seeds gathered it from nature and then uh little by little we added um other things we grew our medicine in our gardens uh, eventually we would grow plants that were good for making dyes or for weaving and then um as we became more um, stable, we started to grow gardens for beauty. And when the settlers came to the United States, the first thing they did was grow gardens for survival. But then eventually they, they added just plants that just were nostalgic and brought them back to their homelands. And, and, and beauty became a feature of the garden. Um, over time, gardens, you know, the reason for gardening has changed quite a bit. I mean, there, the gardens are created for status. Sometimes they're created for legacy, you know. Um, but I say mostly gardens are, are created for joy. And, and maybe now also gardens um, are created for sanity because we, we really can't control all the events in the world, but we can find joy and um, in our gardens, and, and um, it's, it is something that we can control. And 
Karen, you know, with Chris just mentioning how it seems like there's a lot of cultural roots to the reasons why people garden and and bringing their culture from wherever they're from. And for such a small state, your book shows that we have so many beautiful gardens right here at home. You know, how did you go about choosing those gardens? You know, what was your philosophy behind that? Well, I was, um, it started when I was photographing a private garden for um, a magazine. And I thought, wow, you know, this would be great if people could see this garden and others that they don't get to see. And I have, this is my third book, but I always wanted my books to be sort of like travel guides. So people who don't have a private garden or access to that world can actually open the book, look in the index and visit the places. So that started me thinking about public gardens and historic gardens. Um, I love history, so I always like to include anything historic when I can. And, you know, the Connecticut uh, Historic Gardens um, Association, which was established in 2004, they have 15 gardens that they did at the time when I started the book. Now they have 16 because they added the Mark Twain house. So that gave me, 15 gardens immediately to cover. And I did a lot of research into public gardens and there were a lot of public parks, but my cutoff sort of was, um, my criteria was that there had to be a dedicated garden within the public park to be included in the book because it wasn't a book about parks. It was a book about gardens. And I also contacted a lot of uh, garden associations and clubs to find out what private gardens might be out there and some of the public ones as well. Well, I, I love flipping through it because, I mean, your your photos are just gorgeous and it makes me want to jump into it. And then I realized these are real gardens that I can go to. So <laughs> thanks for right. thanks for the reminder. And then I want to ask both of you, did, did either of you have a connection to gardening before writing this book? You know, Karen, let's start with you. Well, um, by profession, I am a landscape design photographer, so I have photographed gardens. Um, this was um, the most I have photographed in one go, let's say, because it was all done in one season. So that was my connection. But um, I just I love nature and I love gardens. And whenever I travel, those are the areas I gravitate to. And Chris, what about you? Did you have a connection to gardening before being involved with this book? Uh, yes, um, I um, I spent about 40 years in the, um, the green industry. Um, so I'm a landscape designer and I had been a landscape contractor for about 30 years. But now I, so, so I'm, I, I really, and I have to say my gardening connection started when I was very young in my grandmother's garden and I've always had this affinity for nature and um, so, yeah, I have, I have a deep love of gardens. And just to let our listeners know that you can find a link to the book on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And Chris, I want to I talk with you real quickly, too. You know, with Connecticut's climate shifting and also being in two different zones, what does that mean about the type of gardens that we see here in Connecticut and also the biodiversity in those gardens? Well... It means a lot. Um, we have tremendous biodiversity in Connecticut, and um, we're seeing it change. Um, 
I mean, you, you think of trees like uh, as being stationary, but actually our sugar maples are migrating northward. So that sounds odd. How could they migrate? But what you're seeing is that um, there's fewer and fewer sugar maples in the south. And as we go north, we're northern ranges of New England, where you perhaps wouldn't have found a sugar maple. Now, now they're beginning to grow there. So the plants are very adaptable. And they move slowly, but they do move and they do change. Um, but it's certainly something to consider. I just designed a garden where um, the client really wanted to have crepe myrtle. And crepe myrtle is considered a southern plant. And 10 years ago, I, I wouldn't have endorsed that idea. But um, now I think, you know, plants from this south that we couldn't plant you know a few decades ago now can grow here and then there's going to be plants that we have that eventually won't grow well here um so it's a shift and um i think it's going to be time soon to to reassess what the what zone we are in um so it's uh just something we're all gonna have to deal with and Chris, you know, the book is divided in three parts, and we're going to start by talking about the Connecticut Historic Gardens section. You know, you started with this group of gardens. You know, what makes these gardens so special? And and we were just talking about biodiversity. Do these gardens play a huge role in keeping that? Uh, they they do. Well, they 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 show the historic gardens are fascinating. There there many of them are less gardens. It's more of a historical um investigation when you go to a historic garden because you're going to have complete exposure to the way people lived in a time period there are some historic gardens where the plants have actually changed because the, the certain species are no longer readily available but generally historians and the people who manage those gardens um have a keen eye on trying to maintain history correctly and so they do their best to, to plant what was there when those gardens were used. I actually had the pleasure of visiting a Tudor house in Southampton, England a couple years ago and just by you describing I remember uh, visiting the house that has a small garden, and they planted the the floral and the fauna that was supposed to be there during that time. And I I learned so much from that, and it just kind of humanized history as well. And so, Chris, in the book, you also captured some of the stories around these historic gardens. You know, why was that important to you? Not just to not just to capture what the garden literally looks like, but also to talk about the deep history behind it. Well, Karen came up with this brilliant idea of showcasing the historic gardens and the public gardens and the private gardens. And her photographs, you know, a photograph is worth a thousand words. So they sort of tell the story of the garden. So I didn't just want to sort of regurgitate these plants are in this section and these plants are there. I wanted to tell the stories of the people behind the gardens and try to offer the, the reader something that they wouldn't necessarily find even by visiting the garden. So, um, you know, I think I think gardens are part of a human story. And so that's that's what I was 
trying to bring to the to Karen's uh, images was the human story behind those gardens. And what were some of your favorites, Chris? The historic gardens? Yeah, yeah. Top three, uh, maybe. <laughs> you know, well, I know uh, you're having uh, Sandy on. She's she's going to talk about the historic gardens, and I, I think she's the manager at Promisec. That is one of, I love the story of Promisec, the history of how it evolved. I, I think Florence Griswold is another great story of how Florence Griswold um, sort of it's a rag to riches story, how, you know, she she started out just trying to survive and she ended up helping to create the, um, you know, the, the 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 lime colony of impressionistic artists. So uh, they're all they all have merit in all their different ways. And that's one of the things about this book. I mean, I'll just say as a garden person i felt like i knew gardens but there's so many things that i learned from working on this book gardens that i had never heard of or seen and it just you know reinforces that connecticut is a garden state and a lot of the stories that came out which were interesting to me were about women and uh women's firsts like um beatrix farron who designed Promisec, um, and also the Hillstead Garden at Hillstead Museum. She was the country's first female landscape architect. And then Theodate Pope, who designed the house at the Hillstead Museum, was one of the country's first female architects. And uh, then we have the Osborne Kellogg Museum, which uh, was inherited by Frances Osborne, and she took over her father's dairy farm and brass manufacturing business, much to, you know, the chagrin of the shareholders, but really increased that wealth and went on to do, um, donate the property to the state and establish a educational nature facility there as well. And Karen, I love that you mentioned that because, you know, we were just talking to Chris about why was it important to sort of capture the history behind these gardens. And I want to ask you, Karen, you know, was it was it special to to discover these stories, especially these gardens that were started and designed by women? Was it important for you to sort of showcase those stories for for many of us who may not know that that these um, amazing women started and designed these gardens? I, I definitely think it's important, especially um, in the times we're living in where these stories aren't always, they're not always at the forefront, um, but they deserve to be. And there's so many women, um, you know, even, even if you go further into it and look at all the women in Connecticut that have a, had a significant place in our history, uh, I think it's very important to get these stories out there. And it's wonderful that they were able to come through in the gardens and it was a surprise to me. I didn't really, you know, working with a writer and just doing the photography, I didn't really know. I knew some of it, but I didn't know as much as Chris uncovered. And was it brown, uh, groundbreaking that so many of these gardens were established by women? Um, I don't know if they... You know, since there's 15 and they all were not, but I, I think about half of them were actually. If you, if you, so I, I guess that is pretty groundbreaking or they had a lot of a, a lot of involvement. So I, I would just add that, 
it is it is, it is a, uh, quite a feat, but it's also, you know, kind of a reflection of women's roles in the household. If we go beyond the designs of Beatrix Ferrand, um, then we see that, like the um, in the, the historic gardens, um, Stanley Whitman and other gardens, they were the, it was the women who were the providers for the family. And so they were sort of forced into that, but that is part of the evolution. That's part of the history. And that's a very fascinating um, feature. Uh, but but gardening is, I, I feel like the best garden designers today even are really women. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of this whole women in the garden. Well, and we're we're going back in time and in history, and also talking about the evolution of of these gardens. So, Chris, can you talk about why historic houses are also now choosing to preserve the gardens and even trying to use the plants and flowers that might have originally been used when the gardens were first designed? Well, I think it's I think it's a a a, um, a clever mission to have to include both the garden and the history into uh, uh, into preservation because, you know, you have people who are going to be attracted by the history and you're going to have people who are attracted by the gardens and you bring that together and it's sort of like, you know, you can use Karen's book as a travel guide. You can visit these historic gardens and it will allow you to have times. It's like we go to a museum, say, a great museums, maybe we pick a rainy day. If we go to these museums, let's pick a sunny day because we get to walk through the gardens and then we get to spend time in the museum and learn about the way people live during that time period. And Connecticut's got a whole range from gardens that date back to the late 1600s, the historic gardens, all the way into the the you know the the late 1800s. So it's it's a real it's a, you really can get a lot out of visiting these places. And you've also spent a lot of time in the book examining our state's public garden, but the idea of public gardens and spaces weren't always a given. So, in fact, they're actually pretty revolutionary. Can you talk to us about what you learned about that? The Connecticut's public gardens and public gardens throughout uh, America and even other countries, it really started in England. And it's really uh, uh, sort of um, an offshoot of the industrial period where people started, you know, we, we we left our farms and were working in cities and dark, sort of toxic environments in, in factories. And then um, those same people would leave the workers and they would go back to their, their row houses. And there was a movement in the um, mid 1800s to start to, you know, it was it was a sort of a start to humanize and, and, and treat people more fairly. So it was it was a noble cause that was taken up by um, religious figures and public figures. And so that was the beginning of the um, um, the American Urban Parks and Recreation Movement. And, and actually the first public park in America is, is Bushnell Park in, in Hartford. Oh, that's an amazing fact. And, and Karen, I wanna jump to you to talk about private gardens. Now, how accessible are these to the public? Well, there's quite a few in the book that actually are open to the public and the owners have um, open 
open garden days. And if you go to their website, you can find their hours. And also the Garden Conservancy lists some of those properties. And through the Garden Conservancy, they partnered with them to have open garden days. So there is access. And Chris, I, I know you talked about this a little bit earlier, and we only have about a minute left, but I want to ask still that gardens used to be used for more practical reasons for survival and to provide. So, you know, from where you're standing, why do you think we create gardens today? I think today, you know, we have the luxury of creating gardens mostly for joy. And, and, I, and I think that that's, um, that's why we do it. I mean, there's just, and I, I mentioned earlier that it, maybe it's a way to um, have control over something that we, we can't control. So, so I think that's the reason. I think, but there's, but it's, it's a very complex, nature is very simple in how it creates its own gardens and landscapes, but, but our, our, we really have myriad motivations for having gardens and creating gardens. And Karen, just really quickly too, I want to ask, you know, why do you think we create gardens today? I think it's for pure beauty. And that's why I love to photograph them. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, you've been listening to Karen B. Davis. She's the author of Connecticut Gardens, a celebration of the state's historic public and private gardens, as well as Chris Laurie, who co-authored the book. Thank you both so much for sharing your experiences with us this morning. Thank you for having you. us. You can find a link to the book and see some of the beautiful pictures from the book on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Coming up next, we'll talk with curators and gardeners at the Mark Twain House and the nonprofit Connecticut Historic Gardens about how history makes an impact on their gardening philosophies. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about all things floral and fauna when it comes to historic gardens here in Connecticut. 
gardening is such a huge part of human history. For some, it was a way to survive, while for others, it was created for beauty and joy. Here to talk more about how a garden gets a historic label is Jody DeBrine. She's the Be- uh, Beatrice Fox Arbach Director of Collections at the Mark Twain House, and Jill Hogan, who's the president of Promisec at Three Rivers Farm, which is a Catholic educational and environmental organization, and she's also the president of the Connecticut Historic Gardens. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Jody, we heard a bit about the historic gardens from Karen Davis and Chris Laurie, who are authors of Connecticut Gardens. I want to ask you, what is the criteria of becoming a historic garden? Um, I think Jill might be able to answer that better than I am, since uh, the Mark Twain House uh, is the newest member of the historic uh, Connecticut Historic Gardens. Um, but for us, it was, you know, being able to uh, plant uh, both inside and the, in our conservatory and outside in our gardens, um, plants that were historically accurate to the Clemens's era, as well as in patterns and motifs and just the way that the gardens look. Um, to capture the history um, of the of the era that we celebrate. Well, Joe, I wanted to ask you the question anyway. So, can you answer? <laughs> you know, what's sure. from your, I mean, I where you're the, standing. The the primary uh, criteria is that the site must have a garden um, that is historically significant and has to been has to have been designed by a known designer or reflect a historical garden style or design philosophy and that it really should be um in collaboration with a historic house or some um something that is accessible to the public so the criteria is really a garden that is tied to a house that has to be available to the public and has some historic significance in the state of Connecticut. So it sounds like a devotion and love of gardens to to be able to have that label. Yes, I think it's not only a devotion and a love of gardens, but also to the history of the gardens and how the intersection between the garden and the house is important to the telling the story. As Chris talked about earlier, telling the story of what happened, of the designer, of the relationship. So some of the gardens are purely for beauty and some of the historic gardens were gardens that had a very functional purpose. For example, the Stanley Whitman house, it's an herb garden, it's in relationship to the house and it reflects a time period, a colonial time period where the garden was provided food and vegetables for that house and medicine. So each garden is, different in that way that it's distinct, distinctly representing the history of the time period. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned history because I want to ask Jody. you know, can you tell us about some of the history of the Mark Twain House Gardens and how you worked to restore it? Absolutely. So uh, the house itself was built in 1874 um, and it went, you know, the Clemens lived there for 17 years and then the Bissells lived there, and then the Kingswood School was there, and then it was apartments. And, you know, so it's had this long history of multiple uses. Um, So when it became a museum, um, you know, we did a lot of efforts to restore the historic house um, to its grandeur of the 1880s um, when the Clemenses lived there. Um, And then 
Uh, then our focus turned to the outside. Um, I think one of the things that Jill and Chris and um, everybody has talked about is that, you know, the the history and the beauty extends beyond the physical walls of the house into the gardens and into the landscaping. Um, so about 15 years ago, um, the Mark Twain House um, and a group of volunteer master gardeners um, got together and really started digging into the history of this place, looking at photographs, looking at letters of the Clemens family, of their friends, of their neighbors, of their uh, reporters that came here, um, and really trying to piece together uh, what plants were where um, and how this landscape really defined um, the the Nook Farm neighborhood um, that the Clemenses lived in, um, that Harry Beecher Stowe lived in. They're right across the lawn and they have beautiful historic gardens as well. Um, so you kind of get a two for one when you visit us. Um, and with that, we were able to identify both locations in which uh, gardens or trees or other plantings were located, um, as well as some of the plants that um, we know that they uh, preferred. Um, both in the conservatory and outside. Um, so with that, we were able to recreate and really grow and establish our, reestablish these gardens across our campus. Um, if we didn't know exactly what plants were um, in there, um, we used other resources um, like a book called Practical Floriculture um, that was given from Olivia Clemens to their first gardener, um, Daniel Malloy, um, and he has notes and scribbles and things in there that we were able to recreate um, plants from there um, or pick plants based on his notes. Um, and then, you know, just based on Victorian designs of the era and research into that, we were able to kind of reestablish our gardens and make them a lovely place to visit. Well, I'm having a little nerd moment here because I love the fact that you learn about what it, what the plants and flowers were used to from letters and, and notes and whatnot. So I always feel a little weird, like, am I being creepy if I'm reading someone else's <laughs> letters? But hey, you're doing it for a good cause. Um, I want to talk more about using the the plants and flowers that were originally used when the when the gardens were first designed. So you can you um, walk us through a little bit more about, you know, what did you learn from from the letters and the notes that you've you were able to study and were you able to sort of find the plants and flowers that were originally there? Yeah, I mean, we um, have, um, based on the letters and the and things that we've been able to find, we have a list of plants um, that we know that the Clemenses grew, and then we have a list of plants that are common to the era. Um, one of the, the, in my opinion, like the coolest thing other than that book that I just mentioned is that the Clemens's second gardener, uh, John O'Neill, um, he cared for uh, plants not only in the ground, in the gardens, in the conservatory, but there was also a greenhouse um, on the property between us and the Harriet Beecher Stowe house. And John became, we know that Livy Clemens loved roses and John in turn then became known in the Hartford community for his roses. Um, so there are numerous newspaper articles out there mentioning John O'Neill and his primroses or lilies or other flowers that he became known for within the garden community. He would sell them on the side and, or in the Hartford community and he'd sell them on the side. And it's just this really cool piece of history. You know, we're, we are the Mark Twain house. We love the Clemens family. Um, but through the gardens and the grounds and the plants, we've really gotten to know 
um, the people who worked here and, and interacted with um, the gardeners, which is a whole other story, just as important and just as fascinating. Um, I think, sorry, yeah. Jody. Yeah. I think that's something that's unique about the Connecticut Historic Gardens because each of the gardens has a story behind the garden. Um, and many gardens have done that kind of investigative research to either find the plans, find the original gardens, um, the, find the original plants. There's a story, the, for example, Bellamy Faraday House, Caroline Faraday um, helped survivors of Nazi, Nazi concentration camps and um, hosted them in her house. And so there's this whole other human side of the gardens that relate to a history that is very fascinating. So it's that intersection between the garden and the history that I think is unique to the Connecticut's historic gardens as a whole. Well, and I feel like just based on this conversation, I, I'm digging myself a hole here, pun <laughs> pun, 100% intended of seeing gardens and gardening as a different kind of storytelling. And like both of you mentioned it, and Chris also mentioned this earlier, it's such a humanizing way of storytelling and learning about our past and history that I find uh, really fascinating. And, and now my curiosity is even more piqued after this. Uh, but Jody, I want to ask you too, you mentioned earlier that this project also started 15 years ago. So can you tell us about how it got started? And I mean, lots of love and devotion to this to want to do that, right? Oh, absolutely. I I cannot emphasize enough the amount of work and dedication and love, as you say, that went into and still continues to go into our gardens. Um, you know, about 15 years ago, um, 2007, you know, the museum center next to the house had been built and we were really looking towards the landscaping plan and a team of master gardeners really dedicated multiple years to this research and multiple years to reestablishing the gardens, getting the soil in, getting the plants from baby, you know, seedlings or babies to fully mature plants and, and really tending to it and loving it. Um, right now we have a group of about seven uh, volunteers who work on the outside and three who work in the conservatory. Um, most of them are master gardeners um, and, they are literally here multiple times a week, really giving their all to the to the landscape around our house. And it's so much appreciated. And as somebody who like can't keep her house plants alive, like I so appreciate all of their knowledge and their respect for these plants and, and the history of them to not only create beautiful places for our visitors to come and see, but also respect for the history. Um, we have a pollination garden, which I know a lot of the historic gardens have. Um, so we're really trying to uh, respect history while also thinking about the future and and keeping you know bees and birds and, and the whole pollination, butterflies, all of them alive in this ecosystem that's changing. And it's just, it's really, it's really spectacular what the gardeners at our site and at all of the historic garden sites, what they've able, been able to accomplish. Well, I just want to tell you, you don't know how happy it made me to hear you say that 
you're not able to keep house plants alive because I'm kind <laughs> of on the same on the same boat. I I just bought two house plants, new house plants. I'm not sure if I'm just kidding myself here, but I'm just I just wanted to make a note on that real quick. <laughs> and you know, also we'll be um, we're also going to be talking to master gardeners after this. Um, but first, I want to ask Jill. This is also the first year that the Mark Twain House is going to be part of the Connecticut Historic Gardens Day. Can you tell us about this event and why is it such a big deal? Uh, So Connecticut's Historic Gardens Day is a day where all 16 gardens are open from 12 to 4 p.m. It is June 25th this year. It's always the fourth Sunday of June, and it's a way to celebrate all of Connecticut's historic gardens, all of our member sites. Um, All of the gardens are open free of charge. The houses associated with them would have their own um, admissions charge, so you should check their websites or Connecticut's Historic Gardens website for that information. But each site usually does something special to highlight their garden. Um, Either some have uh, programs for children. Promisec, for example, will have musicians on the terrace. Some have lectures. I think in general, the volunteers or master gardeners will be available for tours at each site. So this is a chance just for people to come out, celebrate Connecticut's historic gardens all on the same day. Each site is still open throughout the season um, in different at different times. So you should check individual sites. But this is one day where all the gardens are coming together to celebrate Connecticut's historic gardens. And um, we've been doing this for the past 19 years. So it's exciting. And Jody, you know, I want, I want to ask you the same question too. You know, this is the first time that Mark Twain House is going to be a part of it. Um, how does it feel to be doing that, and why is it important to be a part of this? Yeah, it's it's so exciting for us. We are so honored and proud to have been accepted into this group. Um, again, we've been working for over a decade on um, bringing our gardens to life, and uh, within the last couple of years, we've really just been so proud of what we've accomplished and being accepted into this group just, I don't know, celebrates and solidifies all that hard work. And um, for Garden, uh, Historic Garden Day on uh, the 25th, it's really a chance for us to highlight the gardens to our visitors um, in a in a very deliberate way. Um, you know, people comment on a daily basis about them, but this is a chance for our gardeners to really interact with guests. Um, we're going to have um, our living history actor who plays Patrick McAleer, who is the um, family's uh, coachman. He, he's going to be on site to inter, uh, interact with guests. Um, we always have scavenger hunts available to let people learn about the plants. Um, and, uh, you know, throughout the year, we've also done other things with like the language of flowers and things like that to to highlight the different plants in our garden. So uh, Connecticut uh, Historic Gardens Day is just a, a culmination of all of those things that we're very excited to be a part of. And we have a couple of minutes left, but I do want to ask both of you, you know, throughout this conversation, we've been talking about the purpose uh, gardens have served then and now, you know, some for survival, some for pleasure. So I have to ask you now too, you know, why gardens? Why is the act of tending and creating a garden still so important? Jill, let's start with you. I think it's really this interaction between the individual and the land itself. I think the land can teach us something about ourselves, um, about our history, about what's important. Um, 
I know just for myself and our my own personal garden. Uh, for example, we had a rose bush that we transplanted and it looked like it was going to die. And a few weeks ago, this rose just popped out. And it was just as I was driving in and I saw this rose, I was like, oh my gosh. And to me, analogously, it was, it provides hope. Like, oh, you think something's dead and look, there's new life in a totally different way. So um, I think the importance of gardens and particularly historic gardens, it shows the humanizing side as Chris um, spoke about our history and what does that mean for our future, so. Well, I wish my houseplants did that. That's very helpful. Thank you very <laughs> they much. They don't usually, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jody, what about yourself? You know, why do you think uh, gardens are so important today? You know, I, I agree with everything that everybody said. It's just, it's so profound uh, in spring when the gardens come back to life and new buds start to bloom and just the transformation of the exterior space outside it's just it's just lovely and to see how the garden changes throughout the seasons and the different plants that bloom and just I don't know it's just I'm always in awe of nature and to have that little bit of nature here next to these very heavy brick structures is just the juxtaposition is just gorgeous um you know we know that uh you know fruits and vegetables and things like that were planted in greenhouses and on site, but I think the the beauty of it, um, as uh, Chris and Caroline mentioned, the beauty and the joy that these plants bring is so important. And um, for us, the conservatory inside is just as important because during the Victorian era, they really were proponents of having plants inside, which I think is a is a new movement or not a new movement, but a re a re vitalization of that movement as we all buy our own house plants and try to keep them alive. <laughs> well, that's to us to help uh, keep them alive. Thank you both for sharing with us. Uh, you've been hearing from Jody DeBrine. She's the Beatrice Fox Arbach Director of Collections at the Mark Twain House and Joe Hogan. She's the president of Connecticut Historic Gardens. Thank you both so much for sharing your stories with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. The term master gardener has been mentioned a few times during our conversation, but what exactly is a master gardener? Stay with us to find out when we chat with a coordinator with the University of Connecticut's Extension Master Gardener Program. You can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. What does it take to be a master gardener? Before we get that answer, I think the real question is, what is a master gardener? Here to teach us the ways is Sandy Wilson. She's a Fairfield County Master Gardener Coordinator for the University of Connecticut's Extension Master Gardener Program. Thank you so much, Sandy, for joining us today. 
Thank you for having me today, Catherine. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And speaking of Twitter, we have Linda, who tweeted, as a volunteer guide at one of New York's beautiful botanical gardens and Connecticut resident, I am loving this program. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for that comment. We're loving this conversation as well. And back to Sandy, uh, Jody mentioned earlier that it was the master gardeners that helped restore the Mark Twain house gardens. And we've been talking about that. Many of us have heard the term, but may not be familiar with what it is, even though it might be a little self-explanatory. But tell us, what is a master gardener? Well, a master gardener is someone who's gone through the University of Connecticut's master gardener program. It's a cooperative extension program that lasts about nine months. And it's very rigorous, um, comprehensive. We have over 100 hours of training, of classroom and online training that uh, people take. It's, we go over all different facets of horticulture. We start off with botany and soils. Um, we get into uh, in, um, in integrated pest management, um, all the different crops such as turf grass and um, fruits, vegetables. So you you get an overall um, rigorous program teaching you all about uh, horticulture. And uh, we also get into diagnostics. So you learn all about how to identify plant problems, um, how to identify plants in general. Um, we have an, a project that they actually have to complete and uh, we teach them how to um, identify invasive plants and native plants and trees and shrubs. Uh, so it's a really comprehensive program. Um, and it also includes an internship, a 60-hour internship. And half of that is in an extension office across the state where you actually learn how to diagnose plant problems and people come in and bring problems. Uh, they bring in different samples and we have to identify them. Um, and then also they do 30 hours of volunteer time in the community. And that's what, uh, you know, a lot of the different projects, one of them are these historic gardens. We have master gardeners that have been, been involved with these historic gardens across the state. Um, I know you were talking about um, the Mark Twain House and Master Gardeners have been involved with that for many years, but also Promisec Garden in Bridgewater and Elizabeth Park in Hartford, that beautiful garden with all the roses and uh, lovely gardens. Master Gardeners help out there. They volunteer at Harkness Memorial State Park, um, which is a Beatrice Ferran uh, garden as well. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty comprehensive program and you learn a lot. You meet some wonderful people that all have the same mentality. They love nature. They love gardening. They want to share their knowledge. And that's part of the requirements. You need to be able to uh, want to volunteer, um, better your community and share your gardening knowledge with others. Well, it sounds like an amazing program to be a part of. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of picture Master Gardeners in cloaks and just kind of 
go through the gardens <laughs> mysteriously <laughs> because to me, a lot of plants are mysterious. So that's just me in my mind. Um, but I also uh, want to talk about, you know, you mentioned that they, they go through a lot of a lot of um, sort of elements as a part of this program. And it seems like a big part of becoming a master gardener is also having a connection to the public and furthering education about gardening. Can you talk about that component a bit? Sure. Um, as I said, you know, one of the things, one of the things we do is in the extension offices where there are eight Yukon uh, cooperative extension offices across the state, um, we answer gardening questions during the gardening season. So it's a free service and people can come into their local extension office and bring plants and insects they want identified. And master gardeners uh, that have gone through the program actually mentor the new interns in the program. So they learn how to go about doing all that. Um, so as for instance, yesterday, we had a number of people from the public that came into the Bethel Extension office um, that brought in uh, different plant material that they wanted identified. There was a woman that um, wasn't sure what was going wrong with her Ilex uh, Glabra, her Inkberry Holly. And uh, we had someone else that came in with uh, a, a plant um, that uh, had azalea leaf gall on it. So we do all that. It's a free service. And um, I think a lot of times people aren't aware that we're out there to answer gardening questions, but that's a key component of what a master gardener does. And we got about two minutes left here, but I want to ask uh, Sandy that uh, tell us more about the work that you do with the historic garden. And are there are there components that you will like our listeners to know more about? Um, yeah, so they they also volunteer um, at, with the historic gardens, um, doing research, investigative research on some of those plans uh, for the original gardens, uh, actually installing and maintaining some of these uh, historic gardens. Um, so they're involved in a, in a lot of aspects of it. Sometimes they're even docents in some of these gardens. Um, you know, there's a lovely garden, uh, Gertrude Jekyll Garden in Woodbury, uh, connected with the Glebe House that they're involved in. And, um, you know, lots of other ones. And, and also even just local historical societies that we help out with. But that's not only the only um, outreach that we do. We actually are involved in a lot of giving gardens where we grow food for the hungry uh, and donate all the proceeds um, of the harvest to different food pantries. So that's another aspect of some of the wonderful um, projects that the master gardeners are involved with. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I think I've learned so much just from this conversation. Uh, you've been listening to Sandy Wilson. She's the Fairfield County Master Gardener Coordinator for the University of Connecticut's Extension Master Gardener Program. Thank you so much, Sandy, for spending time with us today. Thank you. Great program. Appreciate it. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.